This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. Aaron Carter and Georgia Fay Hursty are two of three co-founders of Frailty Myths, an organization based in Oakland, California, whose mission is to reimagine femininity and build power by bringing our whole selves into our work of cultivating place wherever and however we do that. They join us today to explore how the concept of frailty myths can be implicit bias in the gardening world and how we're all better off when we can see these biases and myths for what they are and compost them openly into more nurturing concepts around self and other. Thank you for being here today and welcome Georgia and Erin. Thank you so much for having us. Hi there. So I want to get started with the two of you giving me your work in your own words, because it's always better that way. Let's start with you, Erin, because you are the one that reached out to me to see about having a conversation about where your work and my work intersects in that beautiful space. Absolutely. Um, thank you so much for having us. Like I said, I, I'm so excited to be here and talk to you more about, about what we do at Frailty Miss and about what you do um, at Cultivating Place. So yeah, Frailty Miss is a, is a nonprofit that was started by Georgia and myself, um, another co-founder of ours. Um, and we've existed since 2016 in Oakland, California. That's where we're based out of. But we host uh, workshops all across the country for women, trans, and gender nonconforming folks. And the mission of Frailty Miss is to create a space and a community where women, trans, and gender nonconforming folks can heal from the trauma that is patriarchy, that is generational trauma, and have a space to reconnect with our feelings of strength, power, community, and justice. And we do that through hosting free workshops in the community on skills and spaces that are traditionally dominated by men. And that includes woodworking, sailing, climbing, gardening, cultivation. Um, and our goal is to build a space and build a community where we can try new skills, where we can try new things, where we can challenge ourselves and, again, break free of that myth that to be a woman, to, to not be a man means that we are weak um, and don't have the ability to be strong and change the world. Yeah. I love the three-part sentence, I guess, or three-part phrase or motto on the website, feel your inner power, grow your confidence, change the world. That is just such a beautiful summation. Uh, Let's move to you, Georgia, with the way you see the work maybe in any different way than Erin just described and or maybe your your personal experience of it. Sure. And I echo Aaron as far as uh, thanks for having us. And I think I, I agree with everything that Aaron said. The piece that has felt especially powerful to me uh, in the last few years is part of the journey that Aaron and I and the other Frailty Miss facilitators, as part of the work and as part of the workshops, um, that has been particularly profound is the the quality of nurturing and curiosity and care. And so there is what feels to me a very revolutionary act and not only taking space back, 
but kind of reconnecting and healing from the impacts and the traumas of these oppressive systems that we've internalized in such a deep, painful way. And the ways that we can connect that back to the earth, to gardening, to self and community reliance, the way that we hold each other and navigate through conflict to do that in a way where we're collectively lifting each other up and healing versus tearing each other down or kind of competing. There are all of these very small and very profound ways that we're also challenging these systems that have unfortunately become re- really normalized mm-hmm. and that we've internalized in ways that for myself, I often, I often find myself, myself at a frailty myth workshop being desperately moved or touched by something that someone has said or shared and realized that it was some pain from some experience I had that I tucked so far away that I didn't have words for it that now through the act of building a stool or that or failing at a thing that someone didn't think that they could do but failing in a way that's safe has allowed them to access and that allowed me to access these these kind of points of pain and then heal from them and that feels when it comes to changing the world and the work that Frailty Miss is doing and that we're doing within all of our communities. Right. Uh, is a really, really like there isn't much, I haven't found other spaces for. Yeah. And, you know, one of the reasons that I find this so compelling is when you think about gardening, um, which is my primary focus, it, it is easy to say, oh, yeah, well, like there's a lot of women who garden. Like how many, how many women don't garden? It can be seen as a very female-dominated space. But the fact is there are whole sections of the gardening world in its wholeness that are traditionally not taken up by women. And, you know, seeing one of your videos that is showing your community how to use a skill saw, how to pound a nail, how to build Uh, whole structures, how to do, you know, whatever the kind of hands-on construction, bigger machinery work that makes gardening and landscaping, even on small scales, easier and more interesting, and you can just do more with it, are often like, oh, I'm going to get, I'm going to get my husband to do that, or my brother or my dad. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. the empowerment that is taken away from you with that mindset is incredible. So, I was super excited to have this conversation with you. I'm 54. I only learned how to use a table saw maybe five years ago, and it's one of the greatest tools ever. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so let's step back a little bit till we get uh, into more detail on exactly what you do in your workshops and into some of that more emotional space of what happens when we unlock this kind of power for ourselves. And tell us a little bit about each of you and kind of where you grew up, Where what were your experiences that led you to be people that wanted to do this kind of work, which is, it's a little challenging. It's, it's probably um, expansive in sometimes painful ways, which I think Georgia already kind of hinted at. Uh, and yet, like, those growing pains get us where we want to be. So let's start with you, Georgia, since I started with Aaron before. Tell us a little bit about your own background and what kind of grew you into a woman uh, or a person that wanted to be doing this kind of work. Great. I grew up in Indiana, 
and in a relatively big family, but was the first girl born in my family and kind of grew up and spent most of my adolescence and into my early teenage years feeling really isolated because I wasn't the kind of girl that all of the people around me were, that people wanted me to be. I would get, like, I didn't connect with dolls and with makeup. And and I remember really being really frustrated as a young person thinking like, well, why don't, why do I have to fight so hard to get access to do, to do fun stuff or to be in my body? And why is it? So I felt kind of shame that I wanted to be more physical and also frustrated and angry that I wasn't, didn't feel like I was allowed to do that, but Mm -hmm. also shame that I wasn't doing a good job at being a girl and also really angry at women because I felt like they were the ones that were putting in this felt like a very suffocating box. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of, found myself on a journey of both being like of of isolating myself away from women and turning myself into this kind of like, oh, I'm not like the other girls or I'm not like the other women because I felt like that was the only way I could get access. Um, And it was really it was a really lonely and really frustrating. And like I said, I carried a lot of shame for many years around that I was I was failing as a woman. I was wasn't doing what I was meant to be doing as a girl. And I also wasn't getting the same kind of access or space to the things that I, I wanted to do and felt, um, as I, as I got older, as I went to school, I met Aaron in college and I started really kind of unpacking and learning about, uh, systems of oppression, particularly of patriarchy about, you know, movements that I didn't know about and started to really unpack my anger toward women didn't wasn't actually about women and the box that I was felt restricted to was was a result of these uh, these oppressive systems and so I moved into working in activism I always had odd jobs in mechanic shops I found myself working on Greenpeace ships where I was trying to get as much as many skills as I could and Aaron at the same time was in grad school and you know, we had these simultaneous conversations about what space looked like and what access looked like and the way it was manifesting in our lives. And I remember feeling like that I was in so much kind of physical and emotional pain that I felt like my option in a ship filled with with men from all over the world was to either assimilate into this very toxic culture of masculinity, of, of posturing, of pretending like I didn't have feelings or emotions, or that I wouldn't have access to anything if I if there was some other way. Um, And so that kind of was where the idea of frailty myths was birthed about what it looks like, what it would look like and feel like to create a space where we could be our whole selves, where we could be honest about our fear of a table saw and still learn to use it, where we could smash things with hammers and still gently hold flowers and appreciate them. And that, you know, that none of those things are inherently gendered, you know, and whatever gender you identify with or whatever gender I identify with, Mm is fundamentally what those things are because I'm doing them. And so there was, um, I think in the creation of frailty myths and the, the birthing of the, of the idea was a very long kind of life journey that we were on and, uh, independently and then collectively. And I think for me, it really comes down to a, a practice that hasn't ever stopped, which is how can I be more whole and how can I be more fully in my whole self and how can I heal the shame that I've built up over the years about pieces of myself I didn't feel like I was allowed to access? And so for me, Frailty Miss, because I'm very comfortable with tools, 
has opened up the space for me to be more in touch with things that I felt like I wasn't allowed to do, like gardening and like baking or being gentle or telling people that I'm scared or, you know, that I don't want help or I do want help. Um, and so there's a wholeness there that I think, you know, for me has been something that even though that's why the organization started, the manifestation and what it actually feels like is there hasn't been something that I have experienced that is more powerful in my own life than allowing myself to be in that kind of space and seeing what it does for other people to be respected as their whole selves and not need the answers, you know? Yeah. So my, my relationship with my own womanhood has been one that I went very far away from it. And now the healing process of not being ashamed that like I am allowed to, to identify with being a woman, with being female and that, and with my overalls and steel caps and, you know, all the other parts of myself. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. So I, I grew up in, in Southern California. Um, I grew up in the suburbs right outside of Pasadena. And I think for me, re- really similar to Georgia, I grew up as a super, I was a hyperactive kid. So I was in soccer uh, just to keep my parents sane, I imagine. Um, I played lots of sports, was was super involved in that. And you know, I always tell people the story when I played hockey when I was in junior high, I played roller hockey, and I was the only girl in the league, and watching the fathers of the league freak out as they saw me uh, sign up. And later on, the league only allowed me to participate. They mandated that I wore uh, catcher's, um, <laughs> like a catcher's, like a protective chest guard, like you mm-hmm. wear if you're a catcher in baseball. Yeah. Um, which was bizarre, but that was how they, I guess, protected young girls then was to put me in a catcher's mask. So, you know, these, these conversations about our proximity to femininity and what does it mean to be called a tomboy and, you know, why is it that as I get more active and I use my body and I'm more physical that I'm somehow, you know, tomboy is implying this kind of closeness to masculinity. Mm-hmm. That's that, you know, has been a, basically a conversation that Georgia and I have been having as friends for the better part now of like 15 years. And so that's really the way that Georgia describes it is really how we met. I think we were both women that were young women that were trying to find our, not just our place in the world, but our place with with the concept of femininity and, and how do we hold that and how do we smash patriarchy at the same time. And I think for me, the, the way that I come to frailty myths, especially, I think, um, especially as a black woman, is what does it mean to hold these spaces that can be generationally healing? I think for frailty myths, I think a lot about generational trauma, about what does it mean as people of color and, and members of marginalized communities to be dealing with multi-generational trauma that's never mm-hmm. been addressed. Mm-hmm. And I think of the power, you know, a lot of times I, I was, I, you know, I spent a lot of time where we're based in the Bay Area. I talked to a lot of tech people and um, I had this meeting with someone who was like, oh, we should do this where we can garden and we can have robots and we'll program them and they'll water the plants and they'll do all this stuff for us. And and, you know, having to explain to them the the psychological benefits of putting my hands in soil, <laughs> the the chemical benefits, right, the actual hormonal benefits that yeah. I see and actually in physically touching plants mm-hmm. and what my plants experience when I sing Beyonce to them, you know, trying to explain that 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 is the space that I think that frailty sits in. That's that journey of healing, not just ourselves but the generations of trauma that have existed is is the is how I come to frailty myths. I, like I said, I I have a background in American and, and race politics, and I've a lot of my work in the past has been about the deconstruction of spaces of harm, and what has been so transformative and so powerful for me in being able to have the privilege of doing this work is 
while while destroying spaces is really necessary and destroying institutions of oppression are is is necessary to our freedom that is imperative to what we do what we build in its in its space is equally as important yeah and how we connect each other to our own feelings of autonomy our own feelings of what does it mean to grow my own food what does it mean to build my own house what does it mean to have the material conditions for revolution within me you know, I always tell people this story. I, George and I did a, a nationwide tour. We spent the month of March, Women's History Month last year, um, driving across the country doing workshops in five different cities, literally from Oakland to, mm. to Washington, D.C. And in our last city in Washington, D.C., we did a roundtable discussion with a bunch of other women, female-identified leaders in, in D.C. And one of the things that the one young woman mentioned was, you know, when you think about your, you know, the biology of women, just, you know, the biology of cisgendered women, we are born with all the eggs that we are, that we are, you know, we're born with all of our eggs, yeah. right? And then we spend our lives with, the, with those eggs kind of slowly dying, which means that you were in your mother's body since she was born. And every high and every low, every moment of joy and confusion and trauma and fear that she experienced, you experienced with her. And your mother was inside of her grandmother. And when we think about how we're tied together and how those moments of joy and trauma are all wrapped up in one and all gone all interconnected, the space that we're building in Frailtimus where people can look at each other and maybe not know each other when they walk in, but lean on each other to heal from not just what we're going through in the exhaustion that is 2019, but also the generations of things, especially as marginalized folks, um, that we go through, you know, every time I go hiking as a black woman, that is, you know, we spent, we spent one of our, we were in Tampa for one of our tour dates and I was sitting in the the bayou essentially of Tampa on the, the shores of this lake. And I'm sitting underneath this tree that is clearly hundreds of years old, this old like willow tree in, in Tampa. And I, I'm, I'm learning how to, to rope access climb. So I've got a full set of rope, you know, ropes tied around me. And all that I could think of in that moment was if I backtracked 400 years mm. to the same tree, my great-great-grandmother is sitting underneath this tree with ropes on her body in a far different context. Yeah. And, and how do I connect those two things together? Mm. And how do I feel safe in this outdoors given what it's held for people that have looked like me in the past? And how do I build a space in the future where it looks like joy and and freedom and not oppression and death. And yeah, so, so I think, um, you know, for me, that is the transformative part of what we're doing with Frailty Minds. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Georgia Fay-Hursty and Aaron Carter are co-founders of Frailty Myths, an organization leading empowering workshops around the country to help communities reimagine femininity and build real, whole power. We'll be right back after a break for more. So the very idea of a frailty myth seems so disturbing to me. And yet, as a granddaughter, a daughter, a niece, a sister, a mother, and a mentor to many, I also know they exist in all of us. They certainly exist in me. What I shouldn't do, what I can't do well, what, I don't know, what other people think I should or shouldn't do. 
This comes up all the time with gardeners. I'm just a gardener. It's not really a garden you will like. It's not a garden like some people's are. There are places for humility, modesty, and apology, right? We can agree to that. But not at the expense of our own respectful, clear, realistic embrace of what we are good at and our ownership of things we love, things we do well, and even things we love but don't do really well, and especially the things we think we would love if we just gave ourselves the chance to try. In the garden, I hold no space for arrogance, but I also hold no space for perfectionism. It's a false choice, and it's lifeless. This conversation with Georgia and Aaron lights me up, in part because of how much discomfort it brings up for me, and therefore asks me to think about. Maybe you feel some of the same. Maybe some of these points resonate with you. Maybe they trigger some of your defensive about what is strong, what is feminine, what is rightfully talked about when we talk about gardening. I think this kind of question is good for all of us. It's where we grow. It's where we grow the importance and fullness of what gardening is, what gardeners look like, who we really are, and what we mean in all the ways we talk about gardening, and with whom, and for whom. For each point of discomfort, I come back to George's statement around getting us through what we don't want to perpetuate in this world. Her, quote, qualities of nurturing and curiosity and care, of collectively lifting each other up instead of tearing each other down. In this work, I find myself asking, I ask myself, and therefore I'm asking you too, what are the tools we use, physical and mental? What are the tools we don't or think we can't use physical and mental? And why? Why? What are the blind spots built into each of our answers to those questions? I, for one, will keep these questions right up front for a while. I think they serve us all. Now, back to our conversation with Aaron Carter and Georgia Faye Hursty, two good, brave humans working to make visible and dismantle frailty myths for all of us. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back now with Erin Carter and Georgia Faye Hursty of Frailty Myths. Having explored the concept of what frailty myths are and how they do not serve anyone well in the garden world and beyond, as we come back, the two describe how their workshops empowering people to do things they didn't think they could do, like building a stool using power tools, work to address sometimes harmful defenses and assumptions we can all carry with us into our daily lives. We're actually based, um, there's a book called The Frailty Myth by Colette Downing Mm -hmm. that talks about the way in which uh, cisgendered women have historically been disconnected from their feelings of strength and power Mm -hmm. and the the political reasons, the social reasons behind that. Um, And Georgia was actually, uh, like she mentioned, um, she was on a boat. 
I think in the middle of the Arctic, somewhere very far away from me. I was at UCLA graduate school and she sent me an email. Like, like she said, we were just talking about the ways in which political science is a very old, white, male-dominated space. Arctic sailing, uh, as I've been told by Georgia, is a very <laughs> white, male-dominated <laughs> space. And we were just having a conversation, quite frankly, as friends about how, and I think what a lot of women are having conversations about, how to deal with dudes that aren't especially fun to deal with at work. And she sent me this book and said, hey... I think this book is kind of what we've been talking about. And I read the book and I was like, yeah, this is, you know, this is, this is the beginning of this. This is really kind of a summarized version of, of what we've been talking about for years. What does it mean that we've been disconnected from this feeling? And, 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 you know, she sent me an email that said, Hey, maybe we can do something about reconnecting back to that. And I, you know, I always tell people I want it to be a more fancier story than that. But quite frankly, when your best friend emails you and say like, Hey, you want to do this? It was like, sure. I don't know. Yeah. Like we were young. We were in our early 20s, you know, sure. And and not knowing that that would take us on a journey of of almost a decade now of of just having this conversation and putting it together. And so uh, at the time there was there was four of us that were involved. Now we have three founders. Um, we were all across the country, all across the world. And so we learned how to build a nonprofit. So um, we did it from the ground up. Everything that we did, uh, we're a 501c3 based in California, like I said. Um, we filed the Articles of Incorporation on our own. We wrote all those things. We learned how to write all those things. It was really, a, quite frankly, a, a meta experience yeah. of smashing our own frailty myth in order to build frailty myths. Um, and from the top to bottom, it's been us, right? So you've talked to Georgia, who's not only our our co-founder, but is also our web developer. Um, you know, you're talking to me, who's not only a co-founder, but is also our grants writer and social media yeah. director. And so, yeah, you know, we've we've done what I think a lot of working women have done is we, we took the, the minutes and hours that we had that we could pull aside. You know, all of us were working full time at the at the at that point um, to try to make this happen. And it, it took it took years. Um, one because, like I said, we were all of us working, you know, forty plus hour a week jobs. 60 plus hour week jobs, quite frankly. And also we wanted to make sure that we were really mindful about what we were building. Mm -hmm. um, this wasn't something, you know, we, we, it's, it's very easy, I think, to go into the nonprofit world, just like it is to go into any world with a lot of flash, but not a lot of substance. And for us, you know, the reason, you know, we, we've connected with Yolanda because our perspective has always been we want to build an organization that has the biggest impact, not the biggest footprint. Mm -hmm. um, and that means partnering with organizations that are doing work that we can highlight as opposed to duplicate. And so that's really that's really where we, we've been. We, we launched officially in October of 2016. Wow. And, you know, when we first launched, quite frankly, George and I have lived, we've, we went to college together, but we spent the better part of our friendship living on different states, continents, you name it, um, just living in different places, not being in the same, the same uh, time zone, let alone the same state or city. And my work at the time, I was working in the labor movement, brought me up to the Bay Area where George is based. And so we were finally in the same city at the same time. And we said, you know, let's go for it. Why don't we host a workshop? Nobody knows us. We'll, we'll post it. We'll see if people like it and we'll go from there and we'll show people that this is something that people really want to do and um, not realizing that this was something that people really wanted to do. After leaving it up for uh, about two weeks, we had over 200 people that had signed up for our workshop, wow. about 20, and we had about 1,200 people say they were interested, which was a great problem to have, a great problem to have. And, and that was that was the launch. And that's been that's been three years now. 
We've had over 500 people come through the doors, over 40 workshops across the country at this point. Georgia was able to climb Mount Kilimanjaro with one of our other co-founders, Susan. We've had workshops out in Puerto Rico, in New York, Denver, Chicago, Durham, um, D.C. We've done everything from sailing in the San Francisco Bay to building a footbridge for an elementary school in the Bay Area. So, nice. Um, yeah, that's that's our founding, and that's you know, like I said, it's really been it's it's constantly this meta experience of of smashing our own myth of are we strong enough to do this? Are we strong enough to be executive directors? Can we can we exist in this world um, to build a space where other people can ask themselves the same question? Yeah. So uh, Georgia, describe that first workshop to me. Who came? What did you do? What did you learn from it? The first workshop. Um, so it was in October, October 8th. And so ours, like Aaron said, I think, yeah, I think, I think actually it was 300 people, 200, 300 people, hundreds of people. And, uh, because I don't know a lot about the internet. Um, I've learned a lot about the internet because of real famous, <laughs> but I did it. And because we didn't think a lot of people were come, I like, we didn't put a cap on how many people could register. And so people had officially like registered and gotten a confirmation. So there were hundreds of people who thought that had received confirmation about that they were coming to this, to this workshop. So we had, what was it, Aaron? Five workshops. Yeah. In the first month. Yeah. We had like one, we had two in a single day to try to get as many people as we could. We sent a lot of apologies. So it's the first, uh, the first workshop uh, Aaron and I were almost certain that nobody was going to come, um, which is, I don't know. I don't want to speak for you, Aaron, but I feel that every workshop still, <laughs> I'm just like, no one's going to ever come, which is obviously never true. Um, but you know, imposter syndrome is a real thing and it, and it's amazing the way that it shows up and, uh, is an interesting thing that we talk a lot about in frailty workshops and it's interesting to just reflect on it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, people started coming, we'd kind of set up, we'd run through, we'd made a really intense agenda, we'd made a really step-by-step project. What was that project? So we had, so we decided after a lot of conversations that we were going to build a stool and we wanted, we wanted something that was going to be able to introduce a, a number of tools to people and also a thing that they could finish and take home with them so that there were, you know, so people could like have a thing that they built. And then as we kind of got closer to deciding on the stool, there were all of these beautiful metaphors that also exposed themselves, both literal and figurative about standing on a thing that you've built with your hands, letting it hold your weight, what that meant, what it meant to, to be lifted up. You know, we often joke about being eight inches closer to smashing the patriarchy. So we found all of these different kinds of ways to talk about the work through the making of this stool Mm -hmm. in a way that we enjoyed and so we were thinking about, so we knew we were going to make a stool. Then we looked at a lot of different designs because we had decided we were going to do it for an afternoon. You know, we didn't have any money. So that was a consideration around like who was going to front what money for what materials, what materials were most accessible, what skill, how we didn't want to overwhelm people. So there was a lot of what ifs. Um, and we knew that we wanted to start by building a container. And that's, you know, we kind of, in that conversation that Erin mentioned when we were in her house and decided to do the first workshop, you know, it had come after five years of talking about how we could do it right and what it meant to be anti-capitalist and run a nonprofit and ask for money and what it meant to 
you know, how, we didn't know all the answers about all of the things. And what if we offended someone? And what was the right language? And was it this word or that word? And sitting in, in Aaron's apartment that night, you know, we, we, we said that, like, really honed into what the mission of Frailty Myths is and the space that we wanted to create which meant, like Aaron said, within this meta way that we also were allowed to be like, here we are in our wholeness and we don't have all the answers. And so from the, from the get-go, it has been like, we will trust the people who come to this space to trust us to be open and authentic about our own you know, shortcomings. And, and it is a journey, it's not a destination and, and we'll do it together and we'll build it together. And I think what Frailty Miss is, is a thing that has been built by everyone who has participated, everyone who has been involved, because they've all given, they've all given those pieces of themselves to the space and to each other. So that in the first workshop we gathered around, and you know it was really like I'm just remembering the the nerves that I felt in that moment. Um, and then we had a conversation. We had a conversation about what frailtyness was and why people came and. So many people had connected to in in the event title, you know. It said we're gonna. It's a it's cart. It's basic power tools in woodworking, and you know we're smashing the patriarchy. And it was we had decided also from the get go that we were always gonna be explicit about what it was that we were trying to do. You know that we weren't gonna try to like sneak it in, like oh come build a <laughs> stool, and we're like sneak in our you know p- political analysis. Like that's not what we're trying to do. Like spinach um, or something, right? Yeah. Um, And we wanted to be explicit about who it was for. And we wanted to explicitly name things like white feminism and explicitly and also explicitly bring joy into spaces and healing and love and and also our, our, like I said, our own shortcomings. So we had this conversation and I remember thinking, so people spoke about why they came and people told story, you know, just stories, so many stories that people could relate to about feeling really empowered as a young person up until they were maybe six and then everything changed and they never touched a tool again or shop teachers or fathers or like, you know, all of the different ways that people were shut down or pushed out or told to be quiet or contained in some way, Um, you know, and, and it felt kind of what like therapy and church and like a room full of friends and, you know, there was a kind of and people were curious. And so it felt, it was a really, um, I remember thinking during the conversation that this is it, you know, this is, this already is such a healing space. And then as we still do, we had a conversation about how we could make space look differently, like how we could go into a workshop and, and build a thing and use tools and not, and not assimilate and not perpetuate all of the things that, that have, you know, hurt us and hurt so many people in different Uh, in different ways over the years. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Georgia Fay Hursty and Aaron Carter are two co-founders of Frailty Myths, an organization leading empowering workshops around the country. We'll be right back after a break for more. Okay, so thinking out loud here, I wish I could have aired every single word of my over an hour of speaking with Aaron and Georgia. 
As longtime friends, they embodied so much of what kind, nurturing, encouraging friendship can and should look like. They met at Whittier College as transfer students. Aaron was studying American political science, which would turn into graduate work at UCLA in race and American politics. And Georgia was studying international political science and classical music. Throughout our conversation, they would in turn tell the other one how well they were doing with my questions and how great their articulate passionate answers sounded. They each told each other that they loved each other. They got teary. They made sure the other one had enough time to speak, and they checked in on that. They embodied what it looks like and sounds like and feels like to practice healthy relationship and community in the garden and in life, to practice being in community. When we practice this, which I really believe is at the healthiest center and heart of our garden time and our garden community time, as Georgia so eloquently describes that moment when someone in one of their workshops actually gets the feel of a tool they were previously afraid of. She indicates you know it's happened because, quote, it feels like therapy, it feels like church, It feels like a room full of friends, end quote. And from my spot, it feels safe, and it feels like love. Now that's worth practicing, don't you think? Our gardens and the plants of the world show us how to practice living in community every day. Now, back to our conversation with Erin and Georgia with more about the practice and cultivation work in their community. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back now to our conversation with the folks from Frailty Myths, Erin Carter and Georgia Faye Hursty. When we left off, Georgia was describing the incredible response to the group's first workshop offering in Oakland years ago now, when hundreds of people RSVP'd for tens of places. As we come back, Georgia describes what it physically means and looks like to create a space and a community ethos that does not perpetuate harmful myths for ourselves or for other people about what we can do, about what we should do. So we we have that conversation through an exercise where people talk about what maximizes and minimizes their ability to be their whole self. Mm-hmm. So... And through that conversation, we're able to name things like, how do we respect, how do we lift up individuals' success? Like, how do we challenge one-upmanship so that we can go into a space where if you finish before I do, I'm excited. I'm not threatened. It's not, it's not a competition. I can celebrate your success and you can celebrate mine. And what does it look like to work in a space where you know that someone's not going to take something out of your hand or offer you unsolicited advice? <laughs> um, <laughs> Or if they do those things, be able to hear, because that's also one of the things we're really trying to do in that conversation and in frailty myths generally is how do we build a language where we can have a conversation about the ways that we inadvertently and accidentally sometimes hurt each other mm-hmm. and not be so defensive that that we can't hear and accept the impact of some of our actions, regardless what our intentions are. Right. And so 
to do that, to do that, we tried to build this language ahead of time um, so that we can practice, so that we can practice being in community and practice being in spaces where if someone does, you know, take something out of your hand, some a person's hand, they can notice it, feel what it's like in the, in because, you know, our, our pedagogy is experiential kind of at every level. And then in the moment that they have that feeling, unpack it, heal from it, discuss it. So, yeah, the, you know, there's a lot of different ways and it and we really let it's a very much a participant led space. But what we are always clear about is that we want to be intentional about what that space looks like and that we get to choose. Yeah, it's not we're not walking into a man's space. We're walking into our space and we get to decide what that looks like and how it feels. And also like challenging the idea that there is one kind of answer or one homogenous like group contract but rather we're all individuals that have different experiences. You know, we come from a very inter intersectional perspective, so we're not trying to equalize everyone in a way where we're pretending that people's experience is all the same, because it's not. Right. But we can go into a space where there's mutual respect and people are allowed to be their whole selves. So I think the first workshop ended up going like, I don't know, four hours longer than uh, <laughs> we had scheduled. <laughs> but it was... It was so beautiful. And so we're all there, you know, and the, the workshop starts in pairs, but then kind of at the end, everyone's like coming together and we're realizing which parts of our, our blueprint didn't really work and which tools people, you know, like the paddle drill people were really uncomfortable with. And so you, we've changed the design a little bit over the years, but people, you know, you could see it on people's faces when they use the tool for the first time. I mean, I knew and Aaron, like Aaron and I had like, we're just, we're good at communicating with our eyes. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a great uh, thing that you learn after 15 years of friendship. <laughs> and, um, you know, I think like it was really evident that it was a thing and that people felt like w we were worried that people wouldn't feel the thing that we were trying to create. And it was so apparent so quickly that they, that they were. And, you know, we saw people using a jigsaw for the first time that had so much self language of self harm when they wouldn't cut a straight line, but they've never used a jigsaw before. Right. So what it, what it means to unpack this fear of access that manifests when you're using a saw for the first time. Yeah. And then at the end, the most like will forever be one, I think the most beautiful moments in my entire life. <laughs> the first person that finished her stool kind of put it on the ground and took a step back and looked from it. And people kind of noticed, and there was this moment of hesitation, and you could just see in her body language, in her face of this kind of miraculous moment of like, holy shit, I built this thing with my hands, but still I don't trust that I can stand on it. And then she did, and she slowly stepped on up and like, almost, at least in my head, almost simultaneously as she realized that it would hold her weight and was filled with like joy and power. Everyone else noticed at the same time and the whole class cheered. Oh. Um, and it was incredible. Yeah. And it was everything that I think we wanted Frail Teamist to be. And now um, every time someone finishes a stool, they stand on it and the whole class stops and cheers for them. And it's, be <laughs> it's still beautiful. But the first time it happened totally organically in a way that um, was, be was beautiful. That is beautiful. One of the things that is clear to me is how many of these myths 
are perpetuated in and by the gardening world and how important it is to to me and I think to all of us who gain empowerment and joy and satisfaction from gardening how much better off we will be if we work on dismantling these myths as well. And the very first one is that gardening is somehow a container for white, cisgendered, middle-class people and because it's just not the truth. And mm. the other one is there was a sentence one of your facilitators uh, spoke in one of the videos and – uh, and it might have been you, Georgia, but it said, we are practicing being in the world we want to live in, and we are rejecting the myth of perfectionism. Mm -hmm. And this is so apparent to me in the gardening world all the time because these myths of perfection and you know, like the cover of some glossy magazine curated by someone somewhere else is held up as like, this is what a garden is supposed to be like. And you will have a gardener say to you, well, you know, I just – I garden on the side. Like it's just a uh, – yeah, like it, I, my garden doesn't look good right now, so you can't come and see it. And it's – you know, you're not going to like it. And it doesn't meet some criteria that they think somebody else has for what is a relationship, not a destination. Yeah. And this is, I think, a really of value for for all of us to get over and to – encourage everyone to move past because that is just not what the heart of gardening is. And it's not what the heart of womanhood is, for heaven's sakes. Yeah. That really resonates for me, I think, in learning. You know, when you were talking before, when we first started talking about gardening, you were saying it's it's an interesting space to be in because people don't always think of it as a male-dominated space, right? That, there, mm -hmm. that sometimes people think of it as this kind of female space and, you know, I think that that conversation that runs in our in frailty miss workshops too. Like for me, like I said, as a black woman, you know, our workshops are about physically. You know, how do we how do you how do we build a physical experience where you can use your hands mm -hmm. and and work? Yeah. And for my ancestors, that is not a history that we have not had access to, yeah. right? Yeah. But for white women that come through the door, you know, that history of true womanhood, of hyper femininity, you know, the reason why none of us have pockets on any of our pants, right? Right. Is because of that Victorian idea of what womanhood was. Right. Um, and that was that was exclusively for white women. And so you have this moment where we're doing something physical, where as a black woman, my experience with this is completely different than the white woman next to me, right? For her, there's a transformative moment in, in the physicality, right? Where for me, there's a transformative moment in owning my physicality, right? In having agency in, in how my physicality moves. Am I, am I working for myself? Am I work? Do I get to decide who I work for? Mm. Um, and I think that gardening is one of those. It's really it's a similar space, right? Where it means different. You know, there's 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 revolution and transformation to have for for people in different spaces. Yep. Where for some folks it it is about you know when I go I go jog and people will tell me like oh let white people jog, <laughs> and it's like the first of all the historical ludicrous of telling black people that we don't run long distances <laughs> just seems. <laughs> You know, ignoring uh, recent history. Um, <laughs> right. 
And also, right, like, what is that, what is race and what is racism doing in that moment to keep me away from spaces of healing, like being outdoors Mm -hmm. or having physical, you know, exercise? And so, you know, yeah, I think, I think when you said even to, you know, people say like, oh, my garden isn't quite good enough. Right. Every workshop I do, every workshop that Georgia does, I can speak for her 100%. Someone will walk up to us and say, this is really wrong, but... Uh, you totally don't have to listen to my question. It's really stupid, but right. I, I, you know, I was an academic in, a, in another life. I was, a, I was a professor, and I would have, you know, teaching political science. You, you will have young people say remarkably dumb things, and and oh, it's okay. And and overwhelmingly, the people that felt the confidence to say things that were just wildly wrong mm. were young men. Mm. And I would have young women who were brilliant who would, before they would say something, would say, "This is probably totally wrong," but. Uh. And, and, and so, you know, Georgia mentioned with the jigsaw, you know, every workshop we have someone say, oh, I, I didn't, you know, when we do a, a construction workshop, I didn't cut this straight. And it's like, okay, you didn't. How many times have you used a jigsaw before? Right. Oh, I never have. Right. Oh, well, <laughs> well uh, okay. You know, that seems like a pretty high standard that you've got for yourself. There, right? Like, um, you know, your, your garden is beautiful because you've put time into it. That's what makes it beautiful. You brought your whole self to it. Yep. Um, it's totally okay that your garden doesn't look all right today. It's totally fine. That's the space we're trying to get to. Right. Yeah. I think, um, that was beautiful, Aaron. And I totally agree with everything that you said. I think the other really beautiful planting gardens, I I don't like, I feel some kind of way about calling it a garden because I feel like it's unfair to the plants who have taken over my house in a beautiful way. You know, because of this kind of manicured, there's there's a way that we commodify gardening and nature and time in a way that feels like, you know, like leisure time and gardening is like this thing that like whiteness and particularly white women have taken as a, as a commodified thing to look at and manicure as part of a perpetuation of this this like very weird and <laughs> oppressive system that is also to, oppressive to the people inside of it. Mm-hmm. And so I think a piece of... Like what, like my relationship with the plant world has done on an individual level and what, like Aaron mentioned, you know, the psychological impacts of putting your hands in soil, but it is, there is a reclamation process, I think that um, is happening that we're certainly engaged in about like, it is revolutionary to, like, it's not leisure time. It's not casual. Like we are not in control of these plants or nature, you know, like we are part of it. We are not observing it. And so and it has been stolen like the the relationship between the earth and our communities has been robbed in in so many ways and so i think there's a manifestation of gardening that's really hurtful like that's got a lot of that is very masculine and has a lot of you know pesticides and control and it has to look this kind of way like you were mentioning and be tidied in this kind of way that is actually the antithesis to the kind of wild beautiful garden that we're trying to grow and what it means to nurture and help something grow versus trying to control it and fit it, force it to be a form that it it doesn't want to be necessarily. Yeah. One of the things that I think is also just really powerful here is, is that word practice and the fact that we are all practicing at being these living beings in relationship with one another, with these plants, with this soil, with this world, and we can't always get it right. And the garden and what you're doing is creating this common ground to which we can practice having these new experiences and having these really scary and tricky conversations that 
even if we don't think we're going to get it right, if we just go in and try and be listeners and try and be learners, then we will be able to grow. Because, you know, talking about things like race and gender and marginalization and patriarchy, they're scary conversations. And there isn't one way to do it right. But it's absolutely wrong to not do it. Yeah. And I think just recognizing there's such a wonderful connection between gardening and between plants and the work that we're doing, you know, mm. I, I got I just got something that I, I was it's a, it was a tiny plant and I transplanted it when I got it home and it was uh, in my new place and it was hot and I came home and the plant was just wilted over and I was like, oh, Lord, I just I just moved. I just killed this plant and I watered it from the bottom. And I watched this plant in real time mm. just drink water mm. in a way that made me remember like, oh, my God, you're living. I had forgotten that. And then to watch this plant who I had, I'm like, I've clearly killed this plant. And to watch it, you know, be as resilient as it was and save itself and grow. It's such a metaphor for us as people. And the work that we're doing, you know, plants, you can, you can train a plant, you can bend it, it won't break, you can, you can do these things with it. And that's, you know, that's what we're trying to do is, is recognizing the resilience of us and recognizing the humanity that we have in each other. Hmm. And, you know, we're all these kind of, we're these like bent plants, right, that are all kind of together in the room. And it's like, how do we acknowledge to each other that we are not all broken, that we all are, we are all savable. And that, you know, one of the things that I think about a lot is I was just in a workshop and um, this woman said something to me that was very simple and very transformative. You know, she said, you are enough and there is enough time. And I think that that space of thinking, we, you know, we often think that we are not enough to change the world. And we often think that there is not enough time to change the world. Mm. And what does it mean to, to think to yourself that you are enough and there is enough time? Um, and we are resilient and we might bend, but but we very rarely break. Um, and, and what does it mean to get into a room together with each other and to, and to confirm and reconfirm that in, in ourselves and in each other? There's very little as satisfying or empowering as picking or pulling or clipping something edible from the garden that you grew. Uh, I think one of the more empowering things is to be able to share those skills and that satisfaction with someone else. And uh, that is exactly the garden I see you all growing. And I couldn't be more proud to have you on the program today. Thank you for your, your work and for your willingness to be in conversation with me today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. It was a really wonderful conversation. I really appreciate what you do. Erin Carter and Georgia Fay Hursty are co-founders of Frailty Myths, based in Oakland, California. The group's work is centered on reimagining femininity and building power in ways that allow you and me and all of us to feel our inner power, grow our confidence, and change the world. 
For more information on the group's work, on inviting them to your community, or in donating in support of their work, please follow them online at frailtymyths.com, as well as on most social media platforms as Frailty Myths. Join us again next week when we kick off a multi-week series on healing and the garden, beginning with a conversation with Annie Kirk of Redbird Restorative Gardens and Design. There are so many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. Over at cultivatingplace.com this week, check out the videos and images of Frailty Mids workshops. They'll wake your own inner garden builder. Good, empowering work for all of us to support in ourselves and in our big, encouraging community of cultivators of all kinds. Our show producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Executive producer is Sarah Bohannon. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.